I, uh, I woke up yesterday, put the finishing touches on my uh, message, and uh, realized I had the whole day in front of me, and, uh, and, and I also realized that it was like breath-suckingly hot outside, and so I decided to uh, take the family up to Flagstaff, you know, because everybody always says, it gets too hot, you're up to Flagstaff, and so I went up there and was with uh, another family from the church, and um, I think I'm going to plant a church up there for three months out of the, uh, the summer, and uh, I don't know if Daryl ever thought of something like that, but... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's a, it is great, though, up there. And, uh, and you know, I, how do you say it? I mean, it's our first summer in the Arizona heat, right? And, and the best analogy I keep giving my kids is that it's kind of like winter in Cleveland, right? It's just kind of a good analogy, you know? You don't go outside much there except to snow ski, and you run from your car to the house and all their stuff. And I said, you know, this is our winter. Get used to it. And, uh, and so we're, uh, we're doing just fine. I am... Um, started a series last week called The People of God uh, that we're in on 1 Peter. And once in a while, when I uh, prepare for Sunday, something happens. And I want to explain to you what happened because it, it happened this week. And that's maybe once or twice a year, as I'm putting together things throughout the week, I realize, kind of like a chef who's preparing a banquet, that I got way too much food for Sunday morning. You know what I'm talking about? And so many times what I do is I say, well, they don't need to eat that and don't need to eat that, don't need to eat that. And I come with a, a, a meal we can all eat. And uh, then other Sundays, though, once in a while, I say, you know what, this is just, it's, it's too important. It's too good of stuff. We, we need to digest this material. And, uh, and so I end up making the message that was going to be a one-part message a two-part message, okay? And so the outline that you have in front of you today, we're not going to get through today. And the reason I share that with you is because some of you real high-control people aren't going to get to fill in all the blanks this morning. And so rather than giving you mild anxiety halfway through our message as you start looking at the clock, just know you're going to fill in the only the first row there, and then we're going to finish it next week. But I plan for stuff like this when I put series together, so we'll be fine at the tail end of it. I, I plan that maybe this stuff happens, and I think you're going to be glad as we go along this morning, as you see where we're going, that we've done it this way, all right? So why don't you bow with me right now, and let's pray as we head to his word. Father God, I, uh, I thank you for the precious time we've had this morning already uh, to dedicate little Gunner to you, to uh, lift up our voices in song. And God, you know my hope and prayer is that uh, maybe you would have slowed us down from the busy week that we've had, gotten our attention off so many things in this world and focused them on your truth and your kingdom. And so God, as we uh, talk about your word now and the things that you've already laid out for us, I pray that we do justice to it, that we'd understand it rightly. More than anything, God, may we have the courage to apply it aggressively in our lives. Thank you for your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to do something uh, today that could be potentially life-altering for some, if not many of us here today. And that is that I want to attempt to clarify three extremely important spiritual realities that are built upon three critical truths that the Bible gives us. Three things that have everything to do with how you become a Christian in the first place, but then how you continue on in your walk with Almighty God. Three things that are core to knowing God and that are core to getting the most out of our relational and spiritual lives. Three things that, by the way, I find that many people tend to be hazy about, even people who are inside the walls of the church, who attend church on a regular basis, and yet God has been over backward to make them clear and understandable and livable in our lives. And again, depending on where you're at in your spiritual journey, I'm going to give you a chance toward the end of today to, to commit what we're going to be talking about here, to draw kind of a line in the sand 
and you might be ready to live life to the full from this point on. And just to give you a little foreknowledge on where we're going to be going uh, the rest of our time here today and then into next week, what we're going to be talking about from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12 are three critical truths that would be summarized in three words. You ready for this? We're going to talk about salvation, security, and assurance. Salvation, that's what we're going to talk about today, and then next week, security that we have or don't have as believers, and then the assurance that we have as believers. And I'm hoping we can nail these things down and forever all be on the same page as a church to what these things are about. And so no more introduction. Let's dive in and explore this first reality, that of salvation. And we're going to park here for the rest of our time today. And here's your first point from 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 12. And that is that salvation is the act of being born again by faith in the resurrected Jesus. Did you know that? Salvation is the act of being born again by faith in the resurrected Jesus. Peter says it right at the beginning of this passage here in verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a new, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, folks, before we go any further with this passage this morning, I want to try to get something out of the way. In other words, there's an elephant in our living room here this morning, an elephant, quite frankly, in our culture, and that is that we need to deal with the incredible and not-so-helpful baggage attached to this phrase, born again. Do we all know what I'm talking about? I mean, this is a loaded phrase in our culture today. And you see, the reason it became loaded is that about 30 years ago, a man was running for president here in the U.S., and one day a reporter asked him if he was a born-again Christian. And he said yes. And this man was obviously Jimmy Carter. And with his unqualified yes, this ushered our country into an era where this phrase born again has now taken on immense amount of political and societal baggage. I mean, you ask the average person today what they think of when they hear the phrase born again Christian. And you're going to hear everything from right wing wacko to strict moralist from judgmental to closed-minded, from religious nut to really religious person, and everything in between. I mean, to say it mildly, this is a loaded phrase in our culture today on a societal, cultural, political, and socioeconomic level. And what's so incredibly sad about this is that this phrase, born again, was and is certainly not new to our contemporary world. I mean, you'd think with what we've done with it that it's a brand new phrase, but as we're going to see, it's like 2,000 years old, originally coined by Jesus, and then as we've seen, picked up by the Apostle Peter. And what's even more sad is that the vast majority of the images and connotations that it carries today were not and are not what Jesus and Peter originally had in mind when they first coined it and used it. And so what I need us to do today is to back way up dispense with our messed up present-day impressions of this phrase and try to get back to what Peter and Jesus were initially trying to communicate to us using this simple but vivid image of being born again, okay? And to do this, I need to take you to Jesus' original coining of this phrase found in a wonderful and life-giving encounter that he had with a leader, a religious leader of his day, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus. You might remember the story. Jesus was receiving a lot of heat from the religious leaders of his day because he was describing God and his kingdom in terms and with ideas that, like, they'd never heard of before. 
And in their mind, who was he to do this? And they were getting pretty ticked off at him. And yet not all the religious leaders were in a defensive posture. John tells us that some of them were actually believing what Jesus was saying, or at the very least were intrigued by Jesus' words, and so they wanted to hear more. But given this completely messed up environment where some of the religious leaders, especially the, 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 the ones that had the most power, were all upset with Jesus, you can imagine then why some of them would be reticent to talk to Jesus. But this guy named Nicodemus really wanted to see what Jesus had to say. And so in the dead of night, when nobody would know, he went to where Jesus was staying and he wanted to talk to him about God and his kingdom. And let's read about what happens in John's own words. Look at John chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Look up here on the screen. It says, This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to them, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so there you have it, folks. The beginning of this greatly misunderstood, rather contentious phrase of Jesus's. And I don't know about you, but I don't think, given this context here, that Jesus was using this word, or this phrase, like many have seen it today. And so let's drill down on what Jesus was getting at here, okay? And to do this, I need for you to focus on the core image of what Jesus is communicating here, this idea of being born. I mean, forget about that word again for just a minute. Cross that out and just focus on that image of being born and ask yourself, what does being born connote to me? What do you think it means to, that Jesus would mean by using this term born? And what I would suggest to you is that core to being born is the reality of life or experiencing life, right? I mean, before someone is born, though you technically have life, it's a very sheltered life. As we all know, it's life in a sack of water with eyes that don't see very much, taste buds that don't taste much, fingers that don't feel much, lungs that aren't even working yet, and ears that if they can hear anything, hear about as well as you and I do when we're underwater and somebody's trying to yell to us, right? I mean, life in the womb is a sheltered life. A baby that's not yet born has not experienced life as God has designed it in all of its fullness, Life with colors and sounds and exploration and discovery and relational ups and downs. Profound joys as well as profound sadness. A child not yet born has yet to experience any of this kind of life that you and I tend to know and maybe even take for granted. But then when a child is born, have you ever noticed? Parents and grandparents go nuts, right? I mean, everybody flocks to the hospital and everybody's all googly and excited and this new baby is now here. And you buy clothes, and you give gifts, and you have parties, and you watch that little one grow and mature. And you're amazed at every new discovery of this world with all its nuances and subtleties. Don't miss this. Being born at its core is all about life, experiencing life, now that you're in this world with all that it has to offer. We all know this. And so with this understanding, then, could it be that what Jesus is getting at here is that though everyone who is living and breathing has experienced physical birth, in other words, they've been born physically, that in order to experience spiritual life, 
one must also go through some kind of birth process again. Could it be that what Jesus was communicating to us through this very common but vivid image of being born is that just like you have to experience physical birth by coming out of the womb and in so doing experience life in all its fullness, that on a spiritual level, when it comes to knowing God and his kingdom, Jesus is saying you likewise need to be born. For without being born again, you're not going to have the kind of experiences with God the Father that he originally designed. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here, folks. I think that's what he means by this very profound image of being born again. I think this is what Nicodemus didn't initially get when he pushes back and admits that he's only thinking on a physical level when he says this, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, he's just thinking on the material level. And notice that Jesus responds and tries to nudge him off center by saying this. He says, but that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Two births he's talking about. One that you happened when you came out of your mother's womb physically, and then again, when you realize the spiritual life that you don't have by default because you have yet to be born into a life-giving, life-forgiving relationship with the God who made you and loves you. And what you need to know, folks, is that this understanding of John 3 here in Born Again collates well with what we know of what much of the Bible tells us. Namely, that before we have spiritual rebirth, we indeed are living in some type of figurative womb, bound by sin, bound by loss of freedom, not really experiencing spiritual life as God had originally designed. So to use the words of Ephesians 2, before we're spiritually reborn, we were, and I quote, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world. And so something, the Bible says, needs to happen. Some kind of birth process, actually a rebirth, because it's in addition to your physical birth, now needs to take place if you're ever going to have the kind of relationship with Almighty God that your soul longs for. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And not only... Does this understanding of Jesus' words here fit well with what the Bible teaches? I would submit to you that it also fits well with our own experience when you take an honest look at it. At least I know it sure fits well with mine. As I've shared with many of you already, I was uh, born in the Cleveland area in a small little Midwestern town just outside of Cleveland called Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Uh, Chagrin Falls is a middle to upper middle class Norman Rockwell Americana town, kind of picturesque and beautiful. In fact, on a sunny day in Cleveland, which doesn't happen all that often, but there are some of them, people will travel from all over the region to go visit Chagrin Falls because it's such a quaint kind of New England-style town. If you and I were taking a tour there, you'd see a gazebo in the town square. I've given you some pictures here. You'd see a river running right through the town with a big waterfall, lots of parks, some quaint restaurants. There's even an old candy store called the Popcorn Shop where you can get an ice cream cone or some cotton candy while you stroll around town looking at all the shops. I mean, it's just a beautiful little town. There's no McDonald's, no Burger King, no Walmart, and no Kmart. They're all outlawed in Chagrin Falls. There's only an old hardware store built back in the 1900s that everybody knows and loves. And so as you can imagine, my physical life being born into Cleveland and into this wonderful little town growing up was like really wonderful. I mean, I went to Chagrin Falls High School and played some sports. I had some wonderful friends. When I turned 16, my grandmother had passed away a year before, and she left my dad a 1965 Dodge Coronet 440 with a two-barrel 361 under the hood. 
and my dad let me have it. What a mistake that was. Because here is this 16-year-old driving this semi-muscle car around town, and in a small town, you can create a lot of trouble doing that. But I loved growing up in Chagrin Falls, and I would explore the underground sewers in the town and fish in the river. I mean, what you need to know is that from a human, natural-based standpoint, in my world growing up, I, real, I felt like I had it all. I mean, a wonderful town, and I had a wonderful family. I mean, my parents who, as I already said, weren't necessarily evangelical Christians, still were kind of traditional in their mindset. Do you remember those days? We had family dinner five nights a week. wonder whatever happened to those. My parents went to all of my sporting events. We took family vacations every year where we loaded the station wagon and drove down the freeway in Nebraska with no air conditioning and things like that. I mean, I had a wonderful life growing up in a physical level. No complaints at all. I was born into this world and experiencing so much of what it had to offer. And yet, listen, folks, even in the midst of all of this, as good as it was to be born physically and living life, ever since I was a little guy, I can remember thinking to myself, there has to be something more to this world than just the material, socioeconomic, semi-relational, pretty fun environment that I'm finding myself in. In other words, ever since I was a little guy, I thought there has to be more to reality than just this. I mean, this is good. It's a physical world, and it's all fine, and I think I got things going for me, but there has to be more than just this to our existence. I remember thinking that. And if Jesus had been talking to me like he was Nicodemus at that time, he would have said that I was onto something. He would have said, Jamie, your soul and your spirit are functioning right. I think he would have said that what I was feeling and experiencing, this longing for something more, this feeling that not all was right in the world, was spot on. He would have said that I had yet to experience spiritual birth, that I'd been born physically and all was well, but that I'd yet to be born anew into a vital, life-giving, sin-forgiving relationship with God my Father. Do you see? And i got to tell you, as I thought about it this week, I thought, well, who can relate more to this than Scottsdale, Arizona, right? I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find two more nicer places to be born into than Chagrin Falls, Ohio, or Scottsdale. I mean, because as far as the physical world goes, we got it all. Upper-middle-class economy, nice houses, good health care, new cars, lots of resources at our disposal. I mean, again, from the physical birth standpoint, we're rocking in both settings. But the reality is, is that that doesn't mean anything if you know that there might be something more that Almighty God, your Maker, has for you. Amen? There might be more that He has. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying two births. One of them physical that ushers us into this world and all that it contains and promises. The other one spiritual. That has the power to, and capacity to turn your spiritual life from black and white to technicolor as we come out of a sin-trapped womb into God's never-ending kingdom. And if you're tracking with me at all this morning, the key question then becomes at this point, well, then how do I experience this second birth? I mean, how do I actually become born again? And to answer this, we need to now go back to our original passage in 1 Peter because Peter answers this question for us. So we're going to turn back there. And once again, as we do, may I challenge you, let's not get bogged down with all the baggage and trappings that our contemporary culture has added to this phrase, born again, right? Because I think you're going to see that some of the things that Peter shares with us here 
might not be some of the things that our culture has added to it, right? So let's dispense with those silly things. Let's understand what the Bible says. So look at verses 3, 5, and 11 of 1 Peter 1. This is so key. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. There it is again. To a living hope. Now get this. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then skip down to verse 5. Through faith for salvation. Then skip down to verse 11. The sufferings of Christ. Folks, add all this up. String it all together, and you have the Bible's clear answer into what's involved in being born anew into God's kingdom. Notice that it says in verses 3 and 11, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the sufferings of Christ. These two phrases are central to what Jesus did for us so that we might have new life. So when it says there that the sufferings of Christ, we know what Peter means by that in verse 11. And the reason that we know what he means by this is because like all good authors, he goes on to explain it. So flip over to chapter 2 and look at verse 24. He tells us exactly what he means by the sufferings of Christ. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement, which are just $10 words describing how Jesus Christ died on a wooden cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven by God of all the things that we have done that have kept us from him. And what you need to know, folks, is that this applies to all of us. For all of us have fallen short of God's glory, of sort of his standard for our lives in some way. Please see, all of us need forgiveness in order to have spiritual rebirth. This is the starting point. Sufferings of Christ, you need to forgive forgiveness. That's why he died. And yet tell me if this isn't so, if this isn't true. And, and that is it is so typically American at this point to muddy the waters by having this kind of attitude. I hear this all the time. Well, come on, Jamie. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, compared to lots of other people in this world, I measure up pretty well. So what's the big deal with this forgiveness thing. You ever heard somebody say that? Maybe found yourself saying that? I mean, I hear people cop that attitude all the time. And I tell you, that attitude is not our friend at all because all of a sudden we've taken, as we're going to see in a minute, God's standard, which tells us we don't measure up and need forgiveness, and said, nah, I think I'll use my own standard. I think that because I'm good compared to my neighbor, I'm okay. And I'm not sure in the end that that helps us our, uh, our creative arts team uh, put together a little drama vignette that helps communicate kind of how we tend to think as Americans. And so uh, look up here on the screen. Look at this. See if you can own any of this or understand it, and, and then we'll talk about it a little bit, okay? Look up here on the screen. Excuse me, sir. Do you have a second? Yeah. We're conducting a survey on attitudes towards spirituality in America. Would you mind if I ask you a question? No, go ahead. What comes to mind when you hear the word salvation? It's a good question. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't thought about that word in a while. You know, it's not something that word I use every day. Um, I mean, the, the very first thing that comes to mind is you know the church and Jesus and God because I was raised in the church, you know, and and had a you know a salvation experience when I was younger at a camp and I was very sincere. It meant a, it meant a lot to me, you know, at the time. Um, but you know, went to college and found new friends and kind of you know, heard opinions of professors and different things like that. And, um, 
you know, it's strange. I just haven't, I haven't thought about it even in a, in a, in a long while. Um, it's funny, you know, th that I was so sincere about it at the time, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really cross my mind very much anymore. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if I've even saved at all anymore, you know. Does that, does that answer your question? That's perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome. What do you think of when you hear the word salvation? Mm, salvation. Salvation as in the way that Christians try to get to heaven, that kind of salvation, you know, get closer to God. Um, you know, I've thought about this a lot, and um, I think I know where you're going with this. Um, I've been told I'm a sinner, and, um, you know, you're, you're entitled to your point of view, but I think I'm a good person. And I think at the end of my life, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And, um, you know, I love my husband. I love my children. I work hard. I pay my taxes. I, I give to charities. I think, you know, that in the end, God's going to look at all that and he's going to say, okay, you can get in. So salvation. Um, I think I'm saved, if that's what you're asking. And um, I don't see... Um, the God in my world would not send people like me to hell. Um, so a loving God to me saves most everybody. Thanks for asking. Thank you. Man, I was not expecting that. I think that's it. <laughs> Man, I was just thinking about what she was saying. and I mean, I'm the exact opposite. I've, been, I've done so many things. God would never forgive me. Never. <laughs> what a contrast between that one woman and that last guy who spoke, you know? Somebody who says that I, I really have done enough good things to get to heaven, and one guy said, no, I've done so many bad things, I'm never going to make it there, right? And, uh, and just focusing on that woman and her responses for a minute, let me ask you, isn't this the way that you find many folks, maybe even yourself at times, functioning in culture? In other words, what we basically say is we say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, compared to Ted Bundy, I'm a really good person. And, and compared to my neighbor, like if you knew what my neighbor did, I, I'm a really good person. And so God has to take that into account, right? I mean, I mean he's not going to discount that, is he? And the only problem with that kind of thinking, now bear with me here, is, is simply this, that when you make a statement like that, what's the standard you're using for being a good person? You're using your own standard, right? You have to be or maybe culture standard, or your neighbor's standard. In other words, you're setting the bar where you want to set it. But the question we need to wrestle with is that what if God is comparing us to a standard that he's already laid out? In other words, what if he is measuring us by a standard that's not our own standard or our culture standard, but what if he's saying that we need forgiveness and spiritual rebirth precisely because we have fallen short of his already declared fair and equitable standard. And so check this out, folks. If you were to read the entire Bible, all 66 books, all 1,189 chapters, all 773,692 words, get this, you would find exactly 6,468 commands. Let that sink in a minute. Over 6,000 things that God in his word tells you that he wants you to do and your life to be about. And the point is, is that anybody here want to own that they've measured up to all of those? Anybody here want to say that you're batting a 1,000 when it comes to all of God's commands, his standard to us? 
I mean, to show you this, just for the sake of argument and clarity today, let's just take the top ten that God has given us, all right? You ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Let's just take the top ten. And so what I did this week is I went on my little software program and I got down to Deuteronomy 5 where the Ten Commandments are found and I cut and I pasted them and I put them on this page here and listed them one to ten. Ten Commandments. And I want you not to pretend now that, that maybe we're sitting at Starbucks or wherever you like to relax and we're having a cup of coffee and I put this paper down between me and you and I say, okay, let's just evaluate our lives on how well we're doing based on the Ten Commandments. Here's what would happen. You would initially most likely feel pretty encouraged. And the reason is, is because you would look down this list and you'd pick the ones that you're like rocking on, right? So you'd go here, you'd go, you know what, okay, um, thou shall not murder. Haven't done that lately. And then you'd go, thou shall not steal. Haven't stolen anything since I was a kid. And then you'd go, honor your father and mother. Well, they're dead. I've been doing that really well lately. You know, and so you'd go down this list and you'd check off the ones, just like I would, that you do really well on, right? But those are only three out of the ten, right? So you're batting about 300. Problem is, is that you start to get to some of these other ones here. Um, number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does that mean? That means you should never lie. You're never to lie. And you say, you mean even like little white lies? The Bible doesn't make a distinction between white lies, black lies, purple lies, nothing like that. Lying is lying. And, and now you begin to squirm a little, right? Or how about you should not commit adultery? Some of you are saying, well, hey, I'm a one-woman man. Or I'm a one-man woman. And, and so you might check that one off. But, but others of you might have had a relational past that is not so pure, right? And she might go, wow, I guess I didn't keep that one very well. Or how about this one? Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. As the Lord God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. You go, well, hey, I'm retired. I'm jamming on that. Or you might say, you know what, I guess I am kind of a workaholic. Or maybe in my early days I was a workaholic, and you know, it's just not every week that I have a day of rest. I guess I don't do very well on that one. And now you're starting to squirm a little bit. And then I'll tell you, it really gets rough. Because you get, for instance, to this one. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his servants, his ox, his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. And you can't weasel out of it by saying your neighbor doesn't own an ox because, you see, this was written 3,000 years ago. And so making it contemporary, it's saying this, you should not covet your neighbor's BMW, new lawn, HDTV, iPhone, or summer home in Flagstaff. And when you do that, you got to ask yourself, do I ever do that? Anybody here want to risk it and raise their hand and say that you've never coveted something? You're, you're scratching, sir, right? Okay, good. That, that you've never coveted your neighbor's stuff? Well, yeah, we have. How about this one? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Whoa. You say, well, what does that mean? Like just swearing, like saying GD or Jesus Christ or something like that? Well, it does mean that, but the Hebrews knew that this also meant, and I get this, that it what it really meant in its original context is that any, any time that you ever utter any of the names of God, and there's like a hundred of them in the Bible, and you do so without reverence and without worship, you're taking his name in vain. <laughs> Whoa, I've, I've, I've uttered his name before, not done that. I mean, I get nervous sometimes with all of our religious talk. I mean, I'll be talking to some Christians, and I'll say, how's your week going? They're saying, it's going great, praise the Lord. You ever know people like that? It's going great, praise the Lord. You know, I got a new car, praise the Lord. And I sit there going, are you thinking about all those times you're saying that? Is that a reverent statement? Or is that just flowing off your lips? See, 
what the Bible says is you don't say stuff like that unless it comes from a heart that's really connected with him in worship. And then the coup d'etat of this whole thing is that you get to the very first commandment. We haven't even touched that one yet. And it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth below. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And when you understand what that means, is it means all of your money, your possessions, your job, your relationships, your hobbies, your dreams, your aspirations, your ambitions, nothing is to come before God or it's an idol. Who of us can claim that? And so what happens is, is you just start with top, God's top ten and you realize, based on this simple standard, we fall very short. And, and what really makes all the difference is that, you know, there's actually a guy in Jesus' day who, who dared to say, I keep all these. So maybe, maybe there's just somebody here who's like Mother Teresa among us that will like say, hey, I've kept all these, Jamie. What's next? Well, here's what's next is that you have, let me get this right, 4,000, or no, 6,458 commandments to go. Because all we've done is look at 10 of them. And I'm telling you, there's no way that you've kept all of them. And well, that's what Peter's saying. That's what the Bible's saying. Simply that we've all fallen short, that all of us, in some measure, need forgiveness by Almighty God if we're ever going to have spiritual life, relationship with Him that our soul desires. And please know that God's not being unfair that way. I mean, sometimes people say to me, well, gosh, I mean, that kind of a tall standard? Well, they are, actually, we show this every day in our lives. You have your own standard. What happens when your best friend breaches that standard? Tell me what happens. One of two things has to happen. Either that friend must apologize, or you've got to dig deep down to forgive him or her, right? Because that's how all of us function relationally. That's how we should function. That's why God wired us that way. He says the same thing. He just says, my standard's a little bit higher, though, because I'm God. And for you to have fellowship with me, you need to meet my standard. And you haven't. And so you need forgiveness. And when it says, folks, that Jesus bore our sins, that he suffered, please see, this becomes the pathway by which our forgiveness is secured. He died for me and for you, that we might be brought to God in personal relationship laden with forgiveness. And when it says further that this is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, please know that was simply to show his power and that who he said he was is true. He said, bury me in the ground three days after I die. I'm going to rise again. Then you'll know I'm God. And he did. And we know. And then comes the real clincher. Look at verse 5 again. It says, through faith. Through faith for salvation. And now we're getting there. Simply put, folks, what the Bible makes evidently clear is that it is not enough to simply know the facts about this second birth or the gospel, your need for it, and the fact that Jesus died for you. I mean, again, it's so typically American. If you ask somebody on the street, you know, do, do, you, do you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? And believe that? They'll go, yeah, 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 I believe that. Because it's like the American thing to believe. If you don't believe that, you're either an atheist or a Turk or something like that. So, of course, you believe that. And yet that's not enough. What the Bible says, now listen close, is that you must personally and experientially receive Jesus Christ into your life, accepting him as your Lord and Savior with your whole person. That's what faith means. Faith means that you need to believe and receive. Receive in a, in a moment in time into your life, given your heart, your mind, and your will, your whole person. You need to come to your point in your life where you realize your utter need for God and stop playing games on a spiritual level, and you place your whole life under His leadership and His control. So to experience this second birth, this spiritual birth that opens up the 
whole of the kingdom of God to you. You need to believe and receive what Christ has done for you. And without receiving him, without engaging God in your mind, heart, and will, accepting him and everything that he's done for you in Christ, there is no second birth, there is no spiritual life, Jesus was saying. I want to tell you a true story that will help bring this home to you that that I think is is a great example of, of what God is talking about here. Uh, Back in the 1830s, during the presidency of Andrew Jackson in our country here, there was a postal clerk by the name of George Wilson. And George Wilson one day decided to do something crazy. He decided to rob a federal payroll train when it was coming through and take the money and live easy for the rest of his life. The only process was is that in the middle of robbing this train, he killed somebody, a guard, with a gun that he had, and then he was found and arrested. And the court convicted him and sentenced him to hang. It was a brutal culture back then. And because the public sentiment was kind of rising higher when it came to capital punishment, there was a movement that started that was trying to get Andrew Jackson to give a presidential pardon for Wilson. And they didn't want him to let him off the hook. They just wanted him to pardon him from his sentence of death, arguing that it was his first offense and that he didn't mean to kill the guard. He just meant to rob the train. And eventually, through a lot of different circumstances, Andrew Jackson did intervene, and he pardoned him. Didn't pardon him from a life sentence, just pardoned him from a death sentence. But amazingly, George Wilson refused it. He said, no, I will not receive that pardon. He said, I, I meant to kill that, I, mean, I did kill that person, and it was wrong life for life, and so I must die. And you need to know this had never happened in our country up to this point. In 50 years as a nation then, they'd never had anybody uh, refuse a presidential pardon. And so it was eventually taken to the Supreme Court to ask them to rule on whether somebody could indeed refuse a presidential pardon. And Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the decision. And I want to read for you a portion of his decision from the transcripts from 1833 on whether or not somebody can refuse a presidential pardon. Listen close. He says, a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered and if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. He goes on to say, it may be supposed that no being condemned to death would reject a pardon, but the rule still must be the same in capital cases as with misdemeanors. And with this decision... George Wilson was hanged. And from that point on, the Supreme Court had declared that a pardon, and still true today, must not only be granted, but for it to be true, it must also be accepted. And what you need to know is that with God, it is absolutely the same. It's the same. I mean, think about what you know about what we've been talking about. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. In a very real sense, Christ came along and he says, I'm going to give a pardon to everybody. If they will, but, well, let's get that in a minute. I'm going to give a pardon to everybody. He's saying, I brought forgiveness available to all. The pardon's been given. You can't do it on your own. You can't earn it. It's now given to you. But if you don't receive it, then the pardon doesn't apply to you. You need to receive the pardon in order for it to be true. And so you're starting to see, folks, Being born again has nothing to do with your voting record. It has nothing to do with the church that you belong to or what value system you might or might not hold. It simply has everything to do with your spiritual walk with God and Jesus and whether you've truly experienced his life-giving forgiveness and the newness of life that he offers to you. That's what it means to be born again. And so here's what I want to do in our time remaining this morning. 
And that is that I want to give each of you a chance to do some business with God. I want to give each of you a chance, if you need to, to draw a line in the sand today. And as far as I see it, there's two groups of you here today, of us, who might want to draw a line in the sand. First, there's those of us who have never clearly had a time in our life where we've accepted Jesus Christ, believed and received as our Lord and Savior. And don't get me wrong, you've been to church, maybe regularly or on and off. You've been involved in plenty of Christian activities maybe over the years, a Bible study, a Sunday school class, or serving somewhere. You maybe even have some kind of church background growing up in the church, or maybe even some Christian friends. But as we've established, none of these things makes you a Christian, do they? Only having a personal relationship with the one who calls you to be born anew is going to suffice. There's some of you today who are finally ready now to accept Jesus Christ into your life and give him control, to receive his forgiveness and experience a new birth he offers you. And all I can promise you is that if you receive him, your life will never be the same. He'll never be the same. This week I got an email from a guy in Chagrin Falls named Tony. And uh, Tony's from my church back there, Fellowship Bible Church. And I met Tony really more intimately a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, I'd seen Tony at the church there for the whole six years that I had been there. I mean, Tony, you'd see him walking in the church as a strapping young businessman, and he'd always be with his beautiful wife and a couple little kids, and they'd come in, and they'd sit like maybe five or six rows back. And I knew his wife came from a Southern Baptist background, so I just thought, hey, you know, I'm sure they're all kind of of the same ilk, and, you know, they're just fine. And uh, one day, I gave our, our congregation, as I'm giving you today, a chance to draw a line in the sand, to come down and pray, to receive Christ, or as we'll see, to recommit your life. And uh, Tony came down. And, and I'll never forget, when I asked people who were receiving Christ to look up to me, Tony looking up. And I could tell by the intense look in his eyes that he was doing significant business with God, that he meant what he was doing. And I came to find out later that Tony had been coming to church for years. Never been born anew. Never gone from black and white to technicolor in his spiritual walk with God. And he needed to come out of the womb, and that day he did. And he sent me an email this week, and he reminded me again, his life has never been the same. What a world, what a relationship it's opened up to him in his spiritual life. And that day marked his spiritual birthday. And I'm going to give you the chance today to maybe have your own spiritual birthday. And then there's another group of you here today that I want to give a chance to draw a spiritual line in the sand, and that's that there are those of you who clearly have been born anew. You've accepted Jesus Christ into your life as Lord and Savior, but let's admit it, the fires have died down a bit, and you need to recommit your life to Him, don't you? And you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's no different than a marriage that goes through dry periods and needs a shot in the arm. You need to affirm or reaffirm your vows to Christ and give your life to Him once again. Uh, to use John's language in Revelation, your first love is not exactly in first place anymore, is it? Or to use Paul's words to Timothy, you need to fan into flame your walk with God through Christ. I, I was amazed by a recent poll that I read in which the Pew Forum cites that 13% of Christians who attend evangelical churches say that God for them, and I get this, is more of an impersonal force than he is a personal relationship. Think about that. One in 7.5 Christians attending evangelical churches today say that God is more like Star Wars for them, may the force be with you, than he is a personal, living, organic relationship. Folks, i got to tell you, I've been there. There have been times as a Christian where the fires have died down so low, where my walk with him is just so placid that I go, something needs to happen. 
You know what needs to happen? You need to recommit your life to him. I love how one of my friends said it to me recently with an illustration. He said, Jamie, this was great. He said, Jamie, you know, when I first became a Christian, it was like from going from riding a single bike to a tandem bike. Remember those bikes with two seats? And he said, when I went to riding the tandem bike, Jesus now was in the front seat, steering it and guiding it where it was to go, and I was in the back seat. And all Jesus asked me to do was to pedal like crazy for the rest of my life, to read his word, to fellowship with other Christians, to serve, to obey, you know, to do the things to do to keep my walk going and growing. He said, but the problem is, is that over time, if not careful, one of two things happens. He says, either over time you stop pedaling and just try to coast, and that's not a good thing, or even worse, he said, you change seats with Jesus and you now take control of the bike and take it where you want to go. And folks, when he shared that with me, I thought, been there, done that, both of those. There's been times I've stopped pedaling, there's times I've switched seats. And in those times, when I've heard a call then to recommit, it's time to recommit. It's time to get back to him driving it, to me pedaling, and to recommit my life to him. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that, if that's you, in just a few minutes here. What I'm going to do for both of you folks out there, whether you're recommitting your life or accepting Christ for the first time, is that I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to come down here to the platform and, and to pray with me. And some of you are thinking, that sounds like an altar call. What are we, like in Oklahoma or something like that? I mean, what's happening with that? Listen very close. I think sometimes we rob ourselves in church today when it comes to the commitments we make because we're so mamby-pamby about them. We just sort of raise our hand or sign a little card. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm not sure in the end that's good enough. One of the things the Bible makes clear is that we're holistic people, body, soul, and spirit. And what one does, the other tends to do. And so sometimes when you're making a commitment of spirit and of soul, it's good that your body follows suit. And so that's why we have people come down here. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is if you're ready to receive Christ, if you're ready to recommit your life to him, I'm going to pray in a minute, and then we're going to sing a song. And during that song, I would invite you down here with me. And the good news is, is that your new pastor is going to be right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just inviting you down to be here with me so that I can then lead you in a prayer either of faith for the first time or of recommitment to him, okay? We're all going to come down together. And so I just hope that if God is tugging at your heart, that you'd have the courage and enough self-respect to say, I will come, Lord, because you won't regret it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, once again in your word, as you promised, when it goes out, it doesn't return void. It's always going to do something in our hearts and minds. And God, today we've looked at one of the most profound truths that the Bible ever shares with us, and that's how our, our salvation can be secured. God, I hope we've been able to jettison some of the goofy views that we've had of this phrase born again in our culture today and just gotten to the root of what Jesus was getting at. And that's simply a new birth, a new life that we can actually have this side of heaven. And Father, I pray that uh, for those who might be ready to receive Christ for the first time, that you would receive their prayer here in just a minute. And Lord, for those of us who have been riding the bike, the tandem bike, for a while, but uh, have switched seats or stopped pedaling, I, I pray, God, too, that you receive our recommitment now. Lord, may this be a, a very much a community event in this safe place. May this be a body life event where though we're doing individual business, each of us with you, we can do it together. And we thank you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.